Listeners, welcome to episode 3 of the Thor's Hermes podcast, released on May 18, 2017. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, and it is a pleasure for me to talk you through this episode. To those who have already listened to one of the previous episodes, happy to have you back. I assume you quite liked it, therefore you returned. Great, thank you. And to those who join me for the first time, really happy to have you here. And if you like what you hear, you might want to go and listen to the first two shows as well. The website to this podcast can be found on www.com. Thothermes.com. That's T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. There you will not only find links to this and all other available episodes, but the website also provides you with the show notes and links to the interviews, presents to you the artwork of our featured artist, links to and informs about the music we play, contains all the news articles and reviews from the show, etc, etc. And in a few weeks there will also be a forum and a blog, but that will be worth a special announcement when it is ready. The podcast itself can be found, beyond the website, also on iTunes, Android, Spreaker, Blueberry and Stitcher and, as I saw, has already been linked into some other podcast services, which is great. Our featured guest today and my interview partner is famous esotericist, spiritual anthropologist and adept of Franz Baden, William Mistily. We had a fascinating talk about lots of different topics, and the interview shows what a very special person Bill is. The interview, which as always lasts just a bit over an hour, is split into parts. During the break I will play some music for you. As we are talking about music, today's selection is not by one single musician or band, but I had somebody who I will talk about and present to you in the news section pick three pieces of his choice, and three very diverse pieces it has become. I hope you will like that idea. If you do so, let me know. 
How you can get in touch, you will find out in a second. And now, some feedback. Far beyond 1,100 downloads for the two first episodes. Thank you for all that. But don't worry, I'm not going to read to you a long line of Facebook or Twitter messages with congratulations, even though they make me very happy, of course. This is very encouraging. But two of them I would like to share with you anyway. They talk about the very interesting stuff the guest of our last episode, P.T. Mistelberger, had to say. A Facebook friend wrote me a private message saying, As a mental health worker and esoteric seeker, what he is saying about the need for psychotherapy alongside spiritual development and the lack of balance that exists among many people is absolutely spot on. I couldn't agree more, and I think this is a very important point. I might even consecrate another episode on that in the future. And my Facebook friend Gabrielle from Montreal summed the interview up in just two words. Amazing episode. Thanks, Gabrielle. But I want to pass that on to Phil, because the honor goes to him. Speaking about feedback, I would really like to invite you again to talk to us here at South Hermes and at the same time to all the listeners, because I would like to share the most important comments, points of discussion, also criticism and suggestions with all of you. It would be great if we became more interactive all together and share our thoughts about what we care which in this case is the world of the Western esoteric tradition. You have several options to do so. Of course, there is always Facebook and Twitter where you can find Thoth Hermes and leave messages. If you have trouble finding us there, go on the website thoughthermes.com and you will see the link buttons. Also, from the website, you can either send us a message directly from the contact page or use the good old email by writing to info at thoughthermes.com. There is a third possibility on the website, which I find quite exciting. On the right side of your screen, you should see a writer send voicemail. Just click there and follow the instructions to send us a voice message for free, which I would also be happy to play in this feedback section next time. For the moment, the length of the messages is limited to 90 seconds, but if you're going to use it more regularly and intensively, I will be upgrading that service so it would allow longer messages. Looking forward to hearing your voices. Last but not least, do subscribe to our mailing list directly from the website and stay informed. Right, that's it. Now, before we go to the interview, I would like to play for you our first piece of music for today. It presents the German rock band ASP, mostly counted to the so-called dark scene. 
Their most famous work is a five-CD cycle called Schwarzer Schmetterling, Black Butterfly, a kind of musical gothic novel. But today I'm going to play for you Zauberer Bruder, which can be translated as Brother Magician, from their 2008 album Krabat, where their typical rock sound is enlarged with middle-aged folk and synthesizers. Enjoy! Und alles gegeben und mehr 
Brother Magician, Zaubererbruder, bei der German Rock Band Asp. Here comes the interview. I have come across William Mistily during my personal research around the hermeticist Franz Barden. What I liked especially about what I found on his website and in his writings is a very personal and special approach to Barden's work and to esoteric and occult currents in general. William Mistily is a spiritual anthropologist and calls himself a professional contemplator. He grew up in a very special family environment and was from his young age on a mystically very sensitive man. In the first part of this interview, he gives us insight into his youth, into his spiritual and esoteric development, and he talks about his first encounters with people who made him who he is today, and explains the parallels and differences between engineers in Detroit and Tibetan Lamas. There will be a musical break after about 30 minutes into the interview. William Mistily, welcome to Thoth Hermes Podcast. I'm very happy that you give me the time today to have an interview with you. I have read a lot on your website about yourself, also your books, and I'm very excited to have you a guest on my show. I must say it's quite a mystery when I sit here in lovely Austria at nine o'clock in the morning on a Wednesday and you at nine o'clock in the evening on Tuesday in Hawaii and we can speak and have this conversation. I think this is part of the good sides of the new world, isn't it? Yes, it's delightful to meet you. And yes, we're on opposite sides of the world. So the world is getting smaller with Skype. <laughs> Absolutely. But um, we might be on the opposite sides of the world. But I think in our thinking and in the way we see the world, so we are not so far apart. Why I initially was drawn to you a couple of years ago, I would say, was your experience with Franz Bardon. <laughs> But that's something we will come back to in the interview a bit later. At first, Bill, I would like to, you to introduce yourself to our listeners, to give us a bit of your background, where you come from, and how you have become what you are today. Sure. Uh, I'm 70 years old, so I'm, I'm pushing the upper limit there. <laughs> I feel like I'm 26, but my body doesn't always agree. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I grew up in a very interesting family. I often felt like I was a, a changeling. Someone put me in there and took the real William and put him somewhere else. And one of my greatest life achievements is that I did not get disowned by my family for being so eccentric and different. <laughs> I was greatly blessed because they didn't know what magic was or what spiritual pursuits were. So they were never offended by what I was doing. They simply did not have a clue or understand in any way whatsoever. They're very oriented towards law, towards business, towards engineering. And it was actually pretty exciting growing up there. 
we lived in a house at one point. It was on Lake St. Clair. It had a huge, about a 80-foot long boat well, which was under the living room of the house. And Colonel Vincent tested and developed the PT boat engines of World War II in that house. So downstairs in the little pub, the engineers would sit around discussing how to get more horsepower out of these super hyped up engines. And so the house had this vibration of uh, military, political, geopolitical power about it. You know, it's just you grow up in that, it affects you. Yeah. One time on a break from college, I came downstairs and my mother said, my mother, by the way, had three majors at the University of Michigan. She majored in economics and mathematics and in geology. And she would have done astronomy too if she had a chance, but she knew astronomy. So back then, before you had an iPhone or or internet, even TV, you had a lot more time to to study. And that's what she was very intelligent, brilliant woman. She was a certified public accountant. And so she says to me, go in there and have breakfast with uh, this gentleman who's visiting us for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And I said, who is that? And she says, that's Captain Pushida. He led the attack on Pearl Harbor from the Japanese aircraft carrier in December 7th, uh, 41. He was the guy who gave the, the, the command attack, 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 tor, tor, tor. So his English wasn't good enough for me to really understand him, but my mother did. And they would argue for two weeks about who started World War II, the uh, Japanese or the the U.S. (laughs) And she had a very great sense of economics and the part oil played in warfare. And she had to say, you know, he made a good good set of arguments. This is information that you you don't hear in the the public media. And later on, my father organized a reunion of admirals in Pearl Harbor which included Japanese admirals from who were reviewing uh, World War II, and they all were in, he rented a house, and they're all sitting around, and they did a film of this, but they never went anywhere. So the idea of you know what do you do when you're sitting around at dinner, and you're talking? Oh, there's father. He, he had a seaplane. He'd fly up into Canada and go fishing, and he'd take the chief of police or or the vice president of Ford Motors with him. He once took Edsel Ford for a ride in his his airplane. He. Uh, you get the, the head of the largest uh, retail stores in the country would be in the backyard. You'd come home and they're, they're cooking hamburgers together. And so you start to think in different terms when your family is linked into political leaders and industry, too. Yeah, I'm sure. You, you, you just grew up with a different mindset, like, what's the problem? How do you solve it? It's not like, oh, that's none of my business or that's not my responsibility. It's a different point of view. Mm. One of the presidential candidates asked my father to be his press secretary at one point. So it's like, you know, the family could have gone a different way. And the family business was was extremely interesting in ways. Uh, father worked 70 hours a week many times, and um, hard lever saw him because he, he was working. He had a credible Protestant work ethic. So we had, uh, he collected speedboats, some of the fastest speedboats in the world run by Garwood. They had, um, they had won the world championships over a number of years. He, he had six of those at one point. He, he christened his, his seaplane Spirit of Detroit, and he, he broke a number of world records for that size airplane. One time flying into Canada, just the two of us, and he says, uh, uh, you see these three instruments. One is compass, one is the wing balance, 
and one is your altitude. And I want you to keep them at these three things, mm-hmm. these three levels. And he went back and put, went to sleep for three hours. And here I was like uh, in ninth grade. <laughs> that's like 14 years old. And I'm flying a plane, you know. Now, mm-hmm. that's that's not only interesting. My mother watched the Wright brothers practice at Kitty Hawk when she was three years old or so. And her her older brother became an aeronautics engineer. So the family represents the, the trans, and father met Henry Ford. And in the early 30s, there are more cars in the United States than horses. Mm-hmm. So you see that d- technology development from where, you know, the first moment of air flight to the father handing to his son the controls of a plane and going and sleeping and you're flying among the clouds. Look yeah. at that. Uh, empowerment of technology handed down and yet at the same time we we in in second grade you know we would practice duck and cover you know and, and get under the desk because russia might be sending a three megaton nuclear warhead to yeah. vaporize right you know it's like wait a minute your, your technology is impressive but there's certain elements of wisdom you lack to to direct it in a positive way it's out of control yeah. you know so i was presented with that that cognitive dissonance between gee you know we, we're masters of nature and gee look at the way the world's being wrecked and the way the world could be come to an end in any moment it's kind of like a, a huge conflict and i could feel that because in that type of family you you do things you don't just these are all extroverts and I'm you, feel, you feel the pulse of what's actually happening isn't it Yeah, and you feel the conflict, and it's like, well, wait, there's that immense power, but they really, really are missing the wisdom about how you live your life in the best way possible. Not yeah. just being successful, but how you avoid massive destruction. And they, they didn't have a clue to that. No self-reflective contemplative abilities. And here I am, an extreme introvert and a professional contemplative. And you know, <laughs> I was exposed to this tradition in a way it's kind of like given insider's knowledge so that I could absorb it and then start asking my, myself those questions. What's missing from life? How do you find those things? Mm-hmm. So that's me growing up. Okay, and now we are at the point that you start asking those questions and find your first answers, I suppose. Where did those answers lead you? Well, I went to a Christian evangelical college called Wheaton College, partly because I didn't want to go to the University of Michigan, where most of my classmates were going. Mm-hmm. And if I'd gone there, I wouldn't end up being an engineer or a lawyer or, or a businessman. Or it was kind of like I was born with a script that said, become a stockbroker, run a $10 billion hedge fund, and have your independent movie studios on the side. And that was written for me like, breathe the air, and this will come to you naturally, <laughs> effortlessly. And and it was like, no, that doesn't solve the problem of the world ending. I mean, I couldn't understand. How can Bill Gates go go make $50 billion and Warren Buffett make $45 billion? And the world literally at least six times was, was minutes away from nuclear annihilation. I mean, how can they sleep with themselves? But when I look into their minds, they it never occurred to them. They don't. 
think in those terms. Mm-hmm. And and but I did, you know. I mean, here we are, PT boats, uh, torpedoes. Uh, we had a breeder reactor in Detroit that almost melted down and and wiped out the city of Detroit. The entire city would have had to have been evacuated in 1966. Yeah. Those issues were very real for me. So uh, I went to the Sweden College, kind of like there's got to be some cultural, spiritual alternatives. That was very disappointing. But one of the curious things, I majored in philosophy. My parents said, well, pay for it if you study business. So I studied economics and, and philosophy. I, but a senior year, I met this girl. Uh, women have played a big role in my life. Uh, she was a hereditary Wiccan. Her grandmother was a, a witch in England with an oral tradition, right. not a part of any any known group. They, they was very secret. What about was that? In what uh, approximately what year was that? Uh, that would be sixty nine. Okay, so the very early stage of that Wiccan movement, which is completely different from what we know about it today. Yeah, this was Toronto, and I, I knew nothing about Wiccan mm. at the time. It was um, highly conflicted because, and this is very politically incorrect, and Wiccans assure me this could never happen, but because she was so incredibly psychic, I mean, she was like um, what I call an incarnated self. She didn't have a human soul. She had the soul of an air spirit, mm. and the astral plane was completely open to her. She could see entities on the astral plane, just like she could see me sitting next to her. And that was my first exposure to an alternate reality, someone who has a dimension of awareness different from the normal functioning, successful human being in our real world. Right. She was both. She was in both worlds at once. And so they were very covetous and they wanted her to be their coven queen and they were using all sorts of magic to kind of encourage or you know inspire her to come work with them. And, and she was just, she pulled the greatest trump card, which is just being stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> but she did something wonderful for me. She, she Here I studied the history of Western philosophy, and I had a fairly good understanding of economics. She dragged me from Wheaton College about two miles away to Theosophical Society, which was in, also in Wheaton. And this, at the time, seemed to be the biggest occult library in the world open to the public. Mm-hmm. So... She said, oh, look at this. I just went wild. And I spent I spent like the next year reading something like 80 books or so. You know, just go, what's this? Kundalini. What, what's this? Theosophy. What, what's this? Tantra. Tibetan Buddhism. You know, <laughs> Zen. What, what are all these things? I never heard anything of this in college. You know? And, the, and the, the ladies there in the library, they would say, oh, we're going to have tea. Uh, would you take care of the library while we're going? I said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of her greatest gifts to me was introducing me to another world but also the fact that she would sit there you know we'd go to a graveyard she would hold out her hand and she could feel the state of the soul of each person in each grave as she walked by she casually walked by it wasn't an effort on her yeah. part and that was like an initiation Shaktipa transmission all of, of its own mm-hmm. because it, it affected me opened me up to that on some level but she wasn't meant to be my mentor or guide or, or partner she was just like here you go bye <laughs> that was the beginning and so at that point right away I started wondering if she's a part of an oral tradition and I can run into that spontaneously just meeting one person you know I said what what are the oldest oral 
traditions on Earth where they have other dimensions of awareness developed in their lineage or in their traditions or, or in their practices. And how do I gain access to those? Right. So for about five or six years, I, I systematically went and studied a number of different traditions. I, I went to the University of Arizona where they actually had a Hopi Indian on the staff oh, of the really? anthropology department. So I was learning Hopi Indian in the process. One of my teachers of Hopi Indian, her, her grandfather was a Hopi um, shaman. So right away, he and I connected. He said he'd never teach a white man, you know, wrong color skin. Really? And so I sat him down one day and I said, can we meditate a little bit? And he said, sure. And so I, uh, I locked in on what the goddess of the earth, what Gaia is for an American Indian of this tradition. And I, I kind of evoked that spontaneously. And after five minutes me meditating, he, we never spoke about anything. You know, we just meditated. Right at that instant when we were done, he started teaching me about herbs. Now, here's what you do with, <laughs> with this type of tree. You get the root, and then you start, you know, making charcoal with it. And you use the smoke to, it'll take care of aches and pains in your legs, you know. And, and unfortunately, I didn't have the, the freedom at the time to go you know, just live with the guy. And he was at the, on the Apache reservation working with them. He, he could find bodies that were lost. You know, the sheriff would come to him and say, where is this missing person? He would go asleep and dream. He'd, he'd be able to locate the person. And there were other people in Tucson who were highly experimental Western parapsychologists. One guy designed the nose cones for, for uh, the Titan missiles and so forth. He's an electrical engineer. And one day a Wiccan, another Wiccan, came to him and she said, you know, you have a lot of magical power. Just point your finger at a candle flame and see if you can make it go in different directions. And he could. And so he quit designing nose cones. And the two of them opened an called bookstore. And I, I took a lot of lessons from them and, and stuff like tarot and astrology and mm -hmm. palmistry, all sorts of things. Yeah. And there was a, a group of them in Arizona, highly eccentric, but extremely experimental and creative. From them, you get the idea. If you have some sort of intuition, you test it, try to find something empirical to connect it to and figure out what you can do with it. I also went to study with Robert a poet in the United States. I went to a week-long seminar with him, and he said, I asked him, where, where can I learn Tumo Yoga, you know, the Yoga of Fire? And he said, oh, go speak to this Rinpoche in California. He's like the only Tibetan Lama in the United States in, in 1970 or 1972. So I did, and I was in his monastery for six months. And you could just sense it. You go to the door, and you can just feel that tradition going back 900 years. These people were very, very professional. The Voyager space craft took 14,000 man hours of engineers and scientists working on it to develop Voyager 1. And you meet one of these Tibetan lamas like Kalu Rinpoche, same thing, 14,000 man hours meditating in caves, one guy. So there's the Western approach, explore the universe, master it. And there's the, the Tibetan approach, explore the inner self, yeah. master it. People I knew in Detroit, the engineers, they had levels of concentration equal to these Tibetans. But they just used it in extroverted ways, like how do you, how do you design a better car? What's a better tire pressure for, for maximum you know, usage and so forth? So they could sit and concentrate for hours without any thoughts crossing their minds. Mm -hmm. But it was an engineering thing. 
Whereas these Tibetans, you know, one time the Lamas, he, he would do this. He'd, get, he'd find these disgruntled or uncooperative students. He said this one kid, go into the temple and visualize the letter, the Tibetan letter, ah, you know, in the throat for six hours and then come back and talk to me. And that was like, that was the best thing I learned for six months while I was there. It was that, oh, look, you don't have to have your mind locked into the outer world. You can take a symbol. You don't have to take a Tibetan symbol. You can take the, the tree of life or or a lake or, or a cloud or anything and spend six hours just focused on it, doing nothing else. And that's the contemplative mind. It's not just concentrating. It's interacting as if you're one with what you're you're meditating on. That was like, wow. That was a connection between East and West that I was looking for. My uncle designed the automatic transmission for General Motors. You know, there you know how people shift cars manually. Well he made it so it would work automatically. And that was what what the problem was, you know, the the extreme introversion of many of the Oriental practices and the extreme extroversion of, of Western technology and industry, you have to develop a transmission somehow in your mind and soul and personality say, right now I'm, uh, I'm working on paying my bills and making money. And oops, right now I'm, I'm totally locked into feeling I'm water itself. Nothing yeah. else exists but this field. And so being having the understanding how to do that and move back and forth was a great revelation for me. What else did I do? I studied with Philip Cargomes, Order Bards, Ovates, and Druids. I went to Ion in Scotland twice for two days. He stayed at my house one time for six days. It was wonderful to work with him because he had the, the elements so balanced in his soul. You know, it was, And I wanted to mm. figure out if he could teach that. And he has a great job of trying to teach that through his correspondence course, like a four-year course at, at the time I was with him. I studied a number of martial arts. Uh, an Aikido teacher in Tucson. Here in Hawaii, we had one of the top 10 recognized Tai Chi masters of, of China. And his father said, don't stay in China, go to Hawaii, because uh, you have to eat with all these mayors and, and governors and eat all this rich food and you get diabetes, you know. Mm-hmm. And that ran family said go go live in Hawaii so here's the guy's got like 10 <laughs> 20 students in here and I would get, literally I went to practice with him two and a half hours every day for a year and I'd take him out to breakfast afterwards and I knew things but I could just sense things about him and ask him questions and if you ask the right questions people open up so he's telling me all these things about his tradition and how they have these death matches and and the, the psychic abilities his father had and and he had and he he let us do videos of him I mean this was unheard of the Taiji Masters at that time would, he let me do videotape anything, and it was great. You know, he loved it. That was very interesting working with him because I could see the the positive and and yet the the secret side of Taiji. Once every month, he would do the form the way it was really meant to be. It's like I look at him and say, "This this is no longer a human being. That's a god doing that form." Because a human cannot do it that way. And there's only one other girl in the group. I could look at her and she'd say, yes, I see it too. But Taiji looks like this beautiful, serene, peaceful, energizing, harmonious set of movements. But it's designed to kill people, period. Because your children don't survive unless you can teach them how to survive these challenges to the death, you know. So so when he turned into that god, it was a god of destruction. It was for destroying things. And so it kind of like ruined it for me because I can't move without touching that energy now. It's like, ah! 
Yeah, <laughs> it's not that that doesn't have a place in the cosmos. It does, but but it's not the nurturing my particular nervous system needs. Yeah. Uh, I also moved to Hawaii to study with with a Taoist master. I would have gone to China, but because I was after an, the, an old esoteric tradition. But she had a monastery. She was the abbot of a monastery in China that had existed for two thousand years. Had never been invaded. Never burnt down. No one had ever sacked it. They had all their original manuscripts and everything. But because of the communists, she left. She took all, all the manuscripts she could bundle up and came to live in Hawaii. And and again, I could sense her energy. I could see how she moved in my dreams. They thought it was really funny. I tried to teach myself their movements from the, a book she had published. She's very incredibly psychic and intuitive. Even the most secret Westerner, they may be very secretive about their, their hermetic practices, but they also feel compelled to teach somebody else what they do and continue the tradition in a way that is a part of, benefits our world, if I can put it that way, even yeah. if they keep it secret. Whereas the tradition from China, these several traditions from China were, were more like, um, no, the only obligation you have is to your own specific student, sometimes just one, that you hand your tradition down to. And you don't hand it down to them until you're really old. So yeah, I provided that way because I like Taiji is, is something so beneficial for health. His older students never fell down. The 80-year-old ladies, they never fell down and broke their legs because they had this superb sense of balance. This is mm-hmm. this is a, a medical necessity for Americans. And he felt no obligation to teach it in that way. And I said, oh, mm-hmm. you know, that's fine. But I, my commitments are more to, to uplift society in whatever way I, I can. So those were some of the esoteric traditions I, I studied with. And I learned a lot from them both their strengths their weaknesses and and it was always illuminating because it gave me always gave me insight into my own background with with uh, fundamentalist evangelical christianity yeah. I, I, at least the nuns were taught to read and write in catholicism the tibetans didn't teach the nuns to read and write but i think it is absolutely fascinating i knew from having read your biography online etc that being somebody of a Western esoteric tradition, but that you have also a lot of experience in the Eastern tradition. And I really am fascinated by the way you describe also this inner self-exploration and on the other side, mastering the world, that opposition gives me a very clear explanation of the main differences. I have one additional question in that respect. You also mentioned the Hopi Indian who at first didn't want to teach you because he said he had never taught a, a white person and he wouldn't see that possible probably. And we have that discussion often. We have that discussion also today. Sometimes again, is a certain tradition really linked to an ethnic group or to a, to a regional group? Is, is that force linked to the tradition where it comes from, or in your opinion, can a tradition, if the pupil is open-minded enough, can he also achieve the same mastery of it, even if he's not from that ethnic group or not from that uh, geographical location? Right. And this comes down to the relationship of the student and the master and what the master feels. Like some gurus or masters are like that. They just look around, they say, oh, time for change. How can I teach this to Westerners? Right. And some not yet. 
come back in 50 years and ask me later mm-hmm. again. You see in many different traditions how the particular teachers respond to the changing world in which, which they exist. The English went into Tibet in, I think, the 20s or so, and they confiscated an entire Tibetan library, kind of like they had guns, and so who's, who's going to stop them? And they yeah. took it back to England, and it became the largest intact Tibetan library in the world because the Chinese weren't fond of keeping Tibetan texts around yeah. when they invaded so this guy was the curator, and I took him on a tour of Honolulu, had a whole day with him in my car. And at some point he said to me, um, you're brighter than you seem, <laughs> and, and you don't seem to have a lineage. You know, you don't have a guru. And, and another girl asked me, I said, who's your guru? And I said, well, I'm freelance. <laughs> it's hard to explain. I, I, I can't be under anyone's authority because I have an inner voice of my own directing me. I can't so, understand what you're saying very well. So he would be that Tibetan curator. He answered all my questions I put to him. There's that openness, but there's also, at one point I had to say, you know, 900 years of, of superb meditating, the best meditative contemplative minds on the earth were in Tibet and yet they lose their country and I mean Padma Sabala who founded Tibet I mean this seriously he might have put in the instructions somewhere by the way when you're done meditating figure out how not to lose your country in 900 years you know it's it's like you don't want to do that you want to be you you want to deal with the issues of the physical world one of primary issue is survival and so however, whether you're Sufi or, or, or whatever your tradition, you, you're evoking archangels, you, you want to come back to keep an eye on, on the, the fundamentals. You know, am I surviving? Is my country about to be wiped away? Right. And uh, uh, should I be using this su- superb, superhuman meditative mind I developed to, to address some of those issues? I think the Tibetans are still working on that. That's important for me. The Hopi Indian was happy to teach me because we had that inner soul-to-soul connection. Yeah. And the the Taoist master who who had the monastery here in Hawaii from China, she was happy to teach me because I was asking the right questions. And she gave me a test. She said, go sit on your roof for a week and contemplate the moon each night. Imagine the moon is inside your abdomen and it's reflected in a still pool of water. And tell me then what what happens after the week. And I came back to her and I, I gave her some impressions of what I was feeling. And she said, yeah, this guy, basically she said, yeah, he's he's intuitive enough to learn how to sense the energy that is fundamental to any type of Qigong movement we do. She was teaching me what she was not teaching any of her disciples, which got them really pissed at one point. But <laughs> we had that, that was my problem to deal with, not hers, but, but we had that inner connection. And uh, I've used that with a lot of these unusual people I've met because um, they're like elemental beings from Bardon's system incarnated in a human body, whether women or men. And they only talk to me if they're convinced I can connect to them from within. I have to feel what they feel. And then they'll open up to me. And that wasn't that easy to do in the beginning. It took a lot of, I had to discover how to do that with with different people. After a while, it it became much easier. 
it's kind of like the idea of silence, the four pillars of Solomon. You know, you will yeah. to dare to know to keep silence. It's like you, you're sworn to secrecy, but if somebody is attuned to you and committed, then it's like all the uh, bars come down and you're, you're free to teach them. In fact, for me, Saturn has a command for all great teachers that you, before you die, you have to pass down who and what you are in your spiritual essence to one person. And a lot of teachers fail in that, like the founder of Aikido, Sensei. Uh, some of his students were fabulous, but he, uh, Sensei had this power of the water element. It was like he didn't have to touch someone to make them fall. He could create a, a wave of energy and it would just sweep them away like a, a giant breaker knocking someone down on the beach. And that that's extremely hard to teach. How on earth do you teach something like that? I talked to another uh, man, Tak Chia. I went in when he was just publishing his first books on Taoist practices in New York. And I was in a class with him. He was speaking and teaching in Chinese to all these Chinese students. And once in a while, he'd look at me and say something in English. And then he was opening my, my meridians. He'd say, you've got that, you've got that, but you need to work on this. And it, it was really interesting. And I went to his camps and I said to him, you know, you're very good teaching the the elements except for water you're, you're not teaching the water element to your students and he says i tried it's impossible to teach westerners the water element but i think all masters have trouble with that we are now going to take a short break in our talk with william misterly and play for you nightfall from the 1998 album Nightfall in Middle-earth by the German band Blind Guardian. This was also their first album to be released in the United States. All you Tolkien fans out there should know that the songs on this CD are narrations from his Silmarillion, a kind of prequel to The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Oh, oh, oh. 
Nightfall by Blind Guardian We now return to the interview with William Misterly, where he talks to us about Franz Barden, how he came to read his works for the first time, but he will also talk about sylphs and the spirits of the elements in general. Now I have to come to a teacher, uh, somebody who is, I think, very important for your personal approach to, to the esoteric and hermetic world, and who we have not mentioned so far. That's Franz Barden, who I also know rather well from his writings, etc. So how did you come across the teachings of Franz Barden? What have they become for you? And where do you stand with all that today? I think the first reference, I, when I was reading all those books from the Theosophical Occult Library, it was Ray Gardie who mentioned one of his footnotes. Oh, by the way, there's this guy, Franz Barden. And if anything I can say about him, he speaks from experience. Mm -hmm. And so right away, I was, I was, it was in my mind. I didn't order any or look up any books yet. But shortly after that, a girl from a occult bookstore gave me initiation in hermetics. She said, "Oh, you might like this." Mm -hmm. So it was put in my, put it on the table that night. There was a storm, and the, the ceiling fell in and hit the book mm -hmm. and the table. I should have taken that as well. When approximately would that be? 1975. Okay. I still have a, that book. <laughs> it's it's fine. But before that. I had been meditating on the first three tarot cards, the fool and Isis and the magician. Yeah. And I would spend like a half hour each day imagining I was the card. And I did that for six months. This was a uh, kahuna Hawaiian style type mm -hmm. meditation I was doing. And so here I run into Barden, and the, the books represent basically these these first set of tarot cards. Yeah. So there was that psychic link. Someone had stamped approval on my picking up these books. I had a master's degree at the time in linguistics from the University of Arizona, and part of the reason I did not pursue a PhD was um, I just wanted to give all my time to working with Barden. But fairly quickly, I ran into some difficulties my nervous system is extremely sensitive. Mm -hmm. I had asked before meeting the Barton system, you know, I'd look back at 2,000 years of Christianity and, I, and there's this kind of, some of the saints were very good, like St. Columba. You know, he could sit on a hill and angels would come visit him every day and he was incredibly psychic and he had all sorts of magical power. But generally, they blacklisted any spiritual practice. Right. He said, no, you can't do it. It's too pagan in nature. And they'll, they'll even say that. Theologians say, oh, we did this intentionally. So I wanted a, some sort of direct contact with the divine world, divine providence, however you want to say it. And in response to my persistence, you know, when you get someone's really persistent, they can ignore you because you're not sincere. But if you're really sincere, they've got a lot of paperwork to fill out. So they, they say, okay, okay, we'll give you something. Go away. So they gave me a clairsentience which is the ability to feel energy, mostly with my hands, or I can feel it with my mind or body, my eyes. But I could feel the aura of any being mm -hmm. anywhere in the universe, anywhere in space or time, future included. Mm -hmm. But they didn't give me a, a lexicon to, or a manual to go with it. You know, here you got it. You figure out how to work with it. Yeah. So. Uh, when I picked up Barton's second book with over 550 different spirits in it, 
There's some beautiful descriptions. Yeah, you know, I just went crazy for three years. I just studied the auras of, of different elemental beings and different spirits of the spheres. And literally, I'd write down a couple of paragraphs describing what I was sensing. And I'd come back 10 years later and I would write, I'd forget that I'd worked with that spirit. I'd, I'd write down another couple of paragraphs describing it. And I'd go back and I'd discover my first one 10 years ago. And they're, they're like the same thing. So I was getting fairly consistent readings on these beings. So I would compare my reading of like a, a mermaid queen's aura to reading another person's aura. So when I go to these spiritual or psychic seminars with someone I hadn't met, I'd study the person's aura. I'd, I'd do a write-up, a readout on the person. And then I would get to know the person for like a week of seminars. And then I'd come back and say, well, what questions do I have to ask so I, I can get a better grasp of who that person is before I meet them so that next time I'm more accurate in reading what is there? Because yeah. the aura is often very different than the personality. A lot of times people are surrounded by beautiful, magnificent energy, but you the biography of the person's been very conflicted. So you may get a person who is like the aura of an angel, but they're very distrustful because they've been really slammed down a number of times in the last 10 years. And so within their own consciousness, they're, they're evolving. They're trying to work through these different, the inspiration is different from the real world experience. Yeah. So I had to kind of take things like that into account in reading auras. The thing about spirits, they're always the same. You, human beings from Friday to Monday, they can go from being a hardcore occultist to a, a fundamentalist Christian or, you know, a Hare Krishna dancer. And that's crazy, but human beings change radically. Yeah, they're unstable. Yeah. Yeah. Personality is unformed, and there's no closure until you're dead. You're, you're always in, undergoing change and possibilities. So that clairsentience was a great gift because, um, like when I tuned into Istifal, I held up my hand, felt her aura, and I said, "Oh, I'll never, I'll never meet a human woman this beautiful." But then right away, I thought, "Well, then again, life is full of surprises." <laughs> <laughs> You never. It's life itself. She's part of life. Life is bigger than the mermaid realm. But still, this is impressive stuff going on there. That ran against the Barden system, which is um, highly mental. For me, when I train with it, I get the mind developed. It's like Raha Yoga. You get this laser-like concentration. Mm -hmm. And the astral body and physical body, he tries to keep you up with that mental power of concentration. But in some cases, just it just takes decades or lifetimes to bring the mind in harmony with the soul and, and with the body. Some people can go out and do yoga for 30 years, uh, like Swami Rama, and he becomes the, the recognized yoga teacher of India. I uh, can stop his heart at will. Other people, like many of these women I meditate with, they are fully conscious of the astral plane. It's more real to them than this physical world in which they live. Mm. So you have the astral realm, and then you, you get these masters of the mind. You know, they're so mesmeric, they can focus and, and go for hours with focused on just one thought or one idea or one magical ritual. Putting those three together is part of Bardone's insistence. You know, bring yourself into harmony, balance, do the basics over and over until you, you get all the balance. But it's still... Uh, not easy to do. I try to do everything in the first book, but over the years, I noticed I had to kind of rewrite each exercise and modify it, reverse engineer it, tear it apart, and put it back together again so it could work for me because my soul, mind, body relationships are simply not 
like a lot of other people's. Mm -hmm. A lot of people just are different, you know. Yeah, sure. If you had to explain to some interested person, but who does not know about Barton, but knows a bit about the esoteric and hermetic worlds, if you had to explain to that person what the Barton system is about in, say, a couple of minutes, could you do that? And would you be willing to do it for our listeners? It depends on the individual you're talking because a lot of the metaphors and examples relate to the specific person. But in general, if someone is aware of the esoteric occult traditions to any extent, I would say what he is doing, he's, he's setting forth a training system, the goal of which is to take an individual who's here in a physical body with a, a personal biography and give him all the powers and intuitive psychic abilities of a spirit of the earth zone, one of the 360 spirits who oversee all of human evolution in, in all its many aspects, while you're still in incarnation. And even then, there's a difference. There, like um, like Alan with Richardson was saying, um, there's something when I write, he was saying, that's different from the, my ordinary self. You know, sometimes I'll read what I wrote. It's like I have to study my own writing to learn it because it's like, who wrote that? <laughs> and I wasn't channeling. It's just that my brain will go into a different set of brain waves or frequencies when I'm focusing on something. And I'll have to write it within five minutes. Otherwise, it's gone. The intuition leaves me. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, it's not it's, don't sit down and meditate for a half hour with no thoughts in your mind. It's sit down, get an intuition, stop and write it up <laughs> so that it can be shared. Otherwise, you, you won't even have it. Remember yourself. You're always going to be here in this world with your personal biography, with your family, with your job, with having to pay your bills, having to decide what to do with yourself, who's your support group, what what ways do you, do you relax, how do you deal with stress, what are your personal goals, how are you accomplishing them, what are your conflicts, what are, what are, how are you resolving them. And yet there's this other side of you. When you meditate, it's like... It's like it's something golden. You, you don't want to ever abuse that power. It's so special. Yeah. It, it's like global in nature. It's world historic. And you could use it to make money <laughs> if that's what you really need. But you better as sure get it focused again back on its highest. What is the highest purpose for these divine powers I've developed in myself by practicing Barton's system? I think if some people teaching the, the system would say that, you know, before you begin picking up the book and reading the first page, write down exactly what purposes you have for what you're going to learn from this material, because those purposes are going to be tested over and over again. So that's for more an esoteric explanation. The other way I say it is, uh, I tell people, no, you don't want to touch this. Stay away from it. It's 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 too powerful. It's only you have to be called, inspired, led, guided. You know, there are people like Martin Fox who will work with you and give you yeah. weekly feedback. And under those conditions and under the influence of his aura, you can do miracles. But again, it comes down to are you serving a higher purpose or are, you know, would you be happier running a hedge fund or, or being a billionaire, selling whatever it is you want to sell? You have to actually ask those questions of yourself. Yeah, no, I understand what you mean. It's very interesting. It's dangerous because it accelerates your karma. If you were abused when you're young 
or you were a bad guy in other lifetimes, or like Barnum will say, if you had a pact with the devils in another life, and here you're practicing magic, they'll they'll come around and say, hey, you know, um, <laughs> is, is there any problems you'd like solve quick? Yeah. And we'll we'll help you out. Anything you want, you know, because we really like you. You're you're like you know you're a special guy. <laughs> yeah. So you have to be able to deal with extreme temptation like that. And also, there's just problems that pop up. Like I've had problems no one on earth could help me with. I have to solve them myself, and that's good because then I have original solutions that I can yeah. teach other people. So it's it's within that context that I, I would warn people to be very careful. It's 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 the real thing. It's it's divine power embodied in a human being, which the system is trying to get you to do. 15 years ago, there was no community, no support system, no archives. Now there are. There's all sorts of people with all sorts of books and archives and training systems. And, and so now there really is a support to do that. So I would, yeah. if someone asked, they answer them directly and say, yeah, yeah, here's what you have. But I wouldn't, I'd be very cautious about going to anybody and saying, oh, you should try this out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. There is another point in your biography, so to speak, that has fascinated me and which I would like to talk a bit about. You have mentioned it once or twice already. Mermaids, undines, etc. Can we call them water spirits or spirits altogether? Sure. Um, that seems to be something that's uh, very much part of your life and your teachings also. So tell us about it. In the later chapters of Initiation Tremetics, Bardon asks his students to, my translation is that he says to his students, I want you now to go into each of the four elemental realms, learn all you can, and make them a second home. Mm-hmm. That seems to be what he's saying to me as I read his material. Other people can do it differently. Yeah. So... Having this clairsentient ability, if I feel the aura of a being, they're not in another realm. They're right here in front of me. I didn't mention that, but perhaps due to overuse of magical rituals in Atlantis, I've been barred from using any ritual magic. No magic circles, no pentagrams, no magic wands, nothing. Because those rituals overdeveloped the mind of individuals like me, accelerating it far ahead of the soul. So I've been asked, well, you have to feel more, you have to be more artistic, you have to be more like a bard who, who can share the, the drama of what it's like to be alive here and now. How does all this magic make you feel alive? How's it, what is it to be fully alive and how does this help you get you there? That's more an artistic, bardic approach. Mm-hmm. So as I went into each of these elemental realms, you run into these fabulous salamander fire spirits who, who oversee all the, the fires at the core of the earth. Just immense beings of power. They run super volcanoes, all that stuff. Really neat. We do that already. We have Tesla, Edison, Nobel with his explosive, Oppenheimer developing the atomic bomb, Teller developing the hydrogen bomb. Oppenheimer is like a salamander in human form. What would they do? They would give us some new form of fire without any moral awareness of the consequences because that's what they do. And uh, the air spirit, they can control hurricanes, even the onset of ice ages. And human beings are like, well, we're, we're aware of the atmosphere. We're, we're aware of global warming. We, we know what's causing what. We can predict weather 10 days in advance, uh, 50 years ago. And we have Shakespeare and Beethoven. The, the air spirits are like the beauty of 
the nuances of each moment as it's unfolding in a sense of wonder. That's very yeah. Beethoven and Shakespeare. Shakespeare look at anyone. And he could write a play about anyone he saw walking down the street, mm-hmm. but he had to write, you know, famous plays. But nonetheless, he, his perception was that each moment is amazing. So we, we have the air spirits. We have scientists. There's no greater pleasure than the thrill of discovery. That, that scientists talk that way. And that's self, you know, wow, the harmony of the universe. And we have people creating, refashioning DNA and putting, you know, molecules and atoms together in different ways and a vast array of chemistry inventing new materials. That's the gnomes. You know, I met a CEO of one company. He's not like Monsanto. He uses all organic methods to genetically engineer different plants. Mm. So they can do things that that have never been done before. But it's such a niche endeavor that it can never spread the wider environment, unlike Monsanto, which are these crazy guys. So we have the gnomes. We have Warren Buffett. He just loves work. Find something you love and work at it with all your heart. That's Warren Buffett. He's like a, a gnome king, and he's the second richest man on earth. He doesn't care about money. He just loves what he's doing. But when you touch that mermaid realm, it's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> there, we have legends and mythology about mermaids. There's nothing in I've ever run across in writing of anybody, literature or esoteric, that remotely describes this level of innocence, uh, this level of beauty, this level of existing to love, giving all themselves in every moment, and this clear sentience they have of, of sensing anything on earth, any person on earth instantly, anything going on in water, anywhere on earth, they are part of it. It's, they just expand like that and they feel the whole biosphere of the planet. That became like, well, you focus on your weakest link because you want to grow. You don't want to become strong in what you're already strong in. You want to work on what you're weak in and see what happens from that. You know, I might say what Barden's saying, which is so unique, is that he wants his magicians to be like these kings and queens of the four elements. These beings terraform the planet. He wants human beings who can basically speak with hurricanes and affect lightning storms and volcanoes and tsunamis and earthquakes, whatever. I've never run into that. I meet these people from other star systems, and I ask them about ET civilizations which have become enlightened and ascended. They don't do that. Mm But Bardon has this sense of, oh, yeah, we've, we've got something different going on Earth. And I want my students to take advantage of the uniqueness of the spiritual potential of this planet. So I think any Bardon student who works with the system for 30, 40, 50 years, they're going to make original contributions. And this stuff about the water element and the mermaids, um, that would be one of my contributions that would naturally add to his initiation, hermetic in his second and third books. So I kind of look at it that way. It fills in for what's missing in human nature. Yeah, yeah. You were just mentioning your students, and you said that before. So can you tell us your teaching? Do you do you accept students physically, so to speak? Do they come to you? Do you teach lessons uh, all over the place? Or uh, is it through your books? How, how do you teach? What's your way of giving your knowledge to others? Right. If anyone asks me a question through email, I'll always try to answer it, unless they're a troll or something. Yeah. <laughs> but my temperament 
doesn't easily allow me to offer a supportive role to other people. Whereas someone like, again, Martin Fox, he he has that kind of youth and energy to, to form a group and oversee the group dynamics. I'm more the research development phase. So as uh, in the artistic genre, you write novel stories, plays, screenplays. I'm, I'm Lots of books I'm teaching. If someone formed an online university of magic and they said, here's, here's Ron Clark, everything works in initiation of hermetics for him. Uh, and over here is William Mistily. Nothing works in initiation of hermetics as it's written. And we can give you exposure to these two and five others. So you as a student have a greater repertoire and set of archives for your individual needs that I could easily teach in that type of online setting, but I'm not the one to organize that curriculum. Someone yeah. like Tanya at um, Falcon Books or Mark and again, are, are more oriented towards uh, let's get everyone together and, and, and see what kind of group energy we can create. Every week, I'll Skype with uh, usually two different individuals because I'm doing primary research, like Rhonda Starkey. She was one of the first. I put out a global casting call for women who could act like a mermaid on a beach. Mm-hmm. So that when I took pictures or videos of them on a beach, I could then reverse engineer and study what is it they're doing that presents the sensuality of an actual mermaid. And, but I started getting real mermaids right away. And Rhonda showed up. And I, But it took two years, of course, but she lived here in Hawaii. It took two years of corresponding with her before we got to the fact she was a mermaid because she wasn't about to explain it. And she was always telling me about her experiences with dead people. And I had the, the idea, well, why would a mermaid talk to dead, human dead people? <laughs> but for, for an incarnated mermaid, uh, spirits are just spirits. They see everything. Yeah. It's like they just have the openness to the entire astral plane. I finally got to interview her in person two days before she moved to the mainland. And then she connected me with another girl who was here who is also a mermaid. And these people have, have cities and powers that I, I've never heard of any magician describing. Like the one girl can slow time. She can, she'll be driving down the street and she'll see an accident happening and she can make it so everything happens in slow motion so that she has the time to maneuver her car out of the way. And she can do that with people about to fall down. She can move across a room like with super speed and catch them before they hit the floor. But for her, it looks like the, everything is just going slowly. Mm-hmm. And she does it all the time, she says. They can see through other people's eyes. Um, Rhonda can relive other people's memories. This is an aspect of empathy. The brainwave of, of her mind will lock into the brainwave of someone else. And within five minutes, she'll relive five, three hours of another person's experience as if it's her own experience so it's not just it's not just like seeing a movie she's there in it experiencing it as if she's that person and i met two or three other people who have the same skill so it's it's fascinating to to run into that and so there's an endless series of explorations the mermaid two mermaid queens promised me i would meet women in human form who were mermaids had mermaid souls so that i could better understand that race of beings and it's a completely different thing you meet a mermaid queen on the astral plane great but when you meet them here in this life and they have a biography and you realize the struggles they have and you see 
the effect they have on other people, then it's like, wow, this is this is really informative. Rhonda is like a greeter to dead people. When people die, she's there often to greet them almost every night to guide them to the astral plane and to what she calls a beautiful park. She also sits on a life review committee when people are ready. She sits with like 11 other people, each one bearing a different sign of the zodiac, and they review each moment of the, of the person's entire life, mm-hmm. showing what the other people were feeling and how the others were affected by this individual. So that you you not only relive your life, you relive how you're affecting other people too. Yeah. Those are those are mermaid empathic abilities, and that's uh, that falls under my spiritual anthropology commission here, which is you know what is human nature. This is all human nature. They just happen to have an edge in areas that we haven't explored yet. Spiritual anthropology. That was the last point I had on my little list of questions because that's an expression you just said it, which I hadn't come across uh, before. How would you describe spiritual anthropology? And it goes back to your question about um, what can a master teach that is useful for everybody that's distinct from the the requirements of carrying on his own individual private lineage? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when when I was looking at the history of Christianity and Judaism too, it was kind of like, okay, they've had 2,000 years here of Christianity. What have they come up with? My parents sponsored just about every evangelical radio minister in the country. They sent Billy Graham on his first crusade to England. They made Cross in the Switchblade was a a mistily funded movie. Uh, But you have to ask, what, what do they actually do that's spiritual? Other than the incredible Protestant work ethic and their morality, and, and Billy Graham's thing is, you know, don't pray for more than a minute. And here I sit with the Dalai Lama's weather controller, who's meditated for years in a cave, and he can control the weather. I know that what he's doing is different from Billy Graham. And yet yeah. Billy Graham, he's huge. He's got this, you know, millions of dollars center, Wheaton College. There's the extroversion introversion difference there. So even in college, I was starting to ask, what are the universal practices you can extract from any esoteric or spiritual training system that are useful for anyone who wants them? And regardless of the beliefs or doctrines or, or theology attached to those practices. And it's just like Bardone. You pick up Bardone, you read this first chapter, and it's initiation from medics, and here he says, well, you, you want an empty mind for 10 minutes. No thoughts intervening. Well, this this is like a lot like Zen. I go sit in Zen monasteries with three or four different masters, and it's like, well, we're sitting there, and we're not thinking any thought is the context. Yeah. And you talk to some of the, the Zen masters, they say, it's impossible. They'll tell you it's impossible to not think a thought for 10 minutes. And then I have Baradon saying, oh, yeah, this is just chapter one, folks. <laughs> I have to say, if you're sitting in a, staring at a wall and there's someone two inches from your right elbow and two inches from your left elbow, you, you get very conscious of your breathing and the gurgling in your stomach. And you become hyper aware of um, if you even get distracted for a moment, it's like they can sense it through your body language. And, and so there's something to be said for social pressure and peer group in developing magical practices. I mean, it's just, it's like, wow, it's really impressive what a group can do. But on the other hand, Byron wants you to do, do that by yourself, so you're free to do either. But the 
Bardon's extracted from all these traditions. He says, well, this is what it comes down to. If you're ever going to do a magical ritual or, or be intuitive or psychic or telepathic or contemplative, you want to be able to do it without any distractions entering your mind, period. Not just for 10 minutes, but later for a half hour or an hour. Yeah. So the point is really clear. He's He's got a practice that a Catholic priest can do, a, a fundamentalist Christian could do, uh, a Sufi could do. It has no nothing attached to it that's occult or esoteric. It's just a straight training of the mind. So when I look at a different traditions, like at the Qigong or, or the Taoist practice or the Tantra, you know, I say, what what is it I can take from that that is useful to anybody? In a way, it's, it's, it's just rewriting the initiation hermetics, but from firsthand observation as an ex- running an experiment. So I'll, I'll do the Qigong for, for years and I'll do it for five hours a day. And then I have to say, what, what do I get out of this so that anyone can learn? That was very useful for me because one of the problems in initiation hermetics is that the vitality, the body breathing, the uh, mouth breathing that Bardon uses, this is the fire element he's emphasizing, which is you develop in the body a highly condensed, highly pressurized, hot, brilliant light white light kind of vitality and he uses that in a very creative way but the mermaids when i study with the, the incarnate mermaids they don't do that they use the water element to heal other people and themselves and so that's much more useful and healthy for my nervous system it's not that i can't do bardons I, I did that for a whole year every day but after a year my body says no this is not suitable for your nervous system stop doing it <laughs> find something else and so in a way i'm filling in for for his system he could have said oh yeah by the way you can do this just easily with the water element or with the air like the cells or with the gnome way but it takes students doing the exercises knowing what works and doesn't work for them and coming up with new things that enrich the system as a spiritual anthropologist those things are incredibly helpful to me i've kind of been forced into this role because when i take some of his Barton's exercises it's like that will not work for me i can do it but it's not appropriate for me what are the alternatives what's out there what's off the shelf technology being practiced around the world in, in that area in a nutshell, what are people doing? What do they say they're doing? And what can what can you observe are the results of their practices? That's spiritual anthropology in a nutshell. And I'm always after that with all these people I work with. And I'll test these different women. Like um, the the one girl I wrote a story about her. I said you're the uh, <coughs> you're the custodian of the mermaid archives who's been sent into this world to be in a human body because identically you're recording all your experience with human beings to take back and put in crystals in the mermaid archives. So in the future ages of this planet, anyone who touches one of those crystals will experience exactly what you've experienced while you're here. Mm -hmm. She doesn't need to know about that. She doesn't conflict with that though, but she's, uh, she's one of the most psychic people I've ever run into. I said to her one time with your abilities and soul, you can scan the entire human population would you find me some people out there who studied the void the way I studied the void? And she started going nation like England. She'd say, well, there's these bright spots of light in England. I can see them and I can telepathically tell some of them to contact you in the future.
here. And then she'd go over to Europe and she'd start going through. I'd say, okay, we got it. <laughs> and I think some of those people actually contacted me. But she would never ask herself that question. Right. But I, I would say, can you relive other people's memories? She'd say, yes. She'd give me examples. Do you speak with dead spirits? She used to do ghost tours in Prague where she would speak with the executioner from 500 years ago and he would tell her all sorts of things about his life that aren't, aren't in the history of, of the Prague castle there and I'd say oh with Rhonda it's great I, I sent her a thermometer an electric thermometer and I said um, Rhonda, you probably read this Rhonda uh, you often get colder when we're meditating together can you hold that in your hands and tell me how cold you can get your thermometer and she can get it to go from 98 degrees down to something like 40 degrees Fahrenheit in a matter of minutes. Now that's 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 empirical. This is observable stuff. Mm. Let's get that on YouTube. Yeah. But it's because she's soul, you know, of a mermaid, and it's because I'm a spiritual anthropologist probing and asking questions. What are what are the familiar limits that you work with? What are the uh, what if you push it, what can you do if you put your foot down on the gas? Kind of like that. This is really fascinating, Bill. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. There would be so many things we, I think, could continue talking for a long time, but we have come a bit to the end of the time that we have available for our podcast. Thank you so much for being available for that interview and for sharing all those extremely interesting and fascinating facts and news for us. It was great. Yeah, I don't know, maybe have you a final comment for our listeners and also if you have any upcoming projects you would like to make them aware of? Well, well thank you for, for taking this time and, and, and digging me up off the internet. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the next book I have coming out is uh, Stories of Magic and Enchantment. And it's going to be, uh, Tanya is so kind to uh, be producing it from Falcon Books. So that will be on Amazon.com, hopefully in the next six months or so. My two prior books were, were Undine's Lessons from the Realm of Water Spirits and Mermaid's Self Gnomes and Salamanders, which goes on to explore the other elemental realms in addition to the mermaid realm. Those are uh, on Amazon too. But I gave you a link for many of my free manuscripts. Exactly. Um, and I'll make sure to post that link and also the link to your Amazon page on the show notes on the website that accompanies the podcast to make sure that our listeners can find you very easily. Thanks think- again and hope to speak to you soon again. Thanks, Bill. Okay, bye. I think Bill is a fascinating guy, full of energy and surprises. It was a wonderful experience to talk to him and I do hope you enjoyed listening to him just as much as I did. I would really like to invite you to go to the podcast website sourcehermes.com and find out more about the links to his work he gave me and which he mentioned at the end of our talk. There is plenty of things to discover. Also, go on Facebook and read his regular postings there which give you always interesting material to think about. You have seen that for Bill, our esoteric experiences and our everyday lives are not separate, but narrowly linked. So find out about his views on the world there. One more note about Franz Barden. 
I personally think he is one of the most important esotericists of the 20th century. If you have only now discovered him, or if you simply want to find out more about him, you will find an extra part with links and more information on the episode page on the website, just under the show notes. Also, I am planning to do an episode about Franz Barton and his teachings in the fall, presenting a roundtable discussion with a couple of specialists and teachers of his hermetic school. Stay tuned about this and subscribe to the mailing list on the website to get that information in time. The news. Initially, I did not plan a news section for this episode, but then I received news about an article and written interview with a very interesting young man which also relates to the main subject of this episode. And therefore, I am presenting to you just this one and only piece of news today. Christoph Maybach, born in 1980, is a hermetic magician in the traditions of the just-mentioned Franz Bardon, a practicing alchemist and also into Saturn Gnosis. Falcon Books Publishing present this interview with Christoph on their website and in their series of interviews with interesting personalities of the Hermetic tradition. It is really worth the read. Christoph gives us a very open and partly also funny insight in how he came to this practice and what it means to him in his daily life. To read this interesting piece, go on www.falconbookspublishing.com, all in one word, and choose blog from the menu. Links are sometimes a tricky thing, so if you don't know how to spell this or just want to be sure, you can find the link directly to the interview in the news section of the Thoth Hermes website. And as you might have guessed by now, it was Christoph who I have asked to choose the music for this episode. Thanks for sharing your choice and taste with us, Christoph. The third piece he has picked is very different from the two others, but I would say a perfect choice for Hermetic Searcher. You're going to hear the final minutes from Mozart's famous opera Die Zauberflöte, The Magic Flute. The text here says that the rays of the sun are chasing the night. Die Strahlen der Sonne vertreiben die Nacht.
Der Sonne. The Final Moments from Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's Opera The Magic Flute. And now for the first time on Thor's Hermes Podcast. Books and other reviews. In this section, we will regularly present to you reviews of books or other new releases that could be of interest to you. Links to the publishers and or a vending point of the reviewed works can be found in the review section on our website. Today, I will introduce to you two new books. The first exciting new release has been published by Psychedelic Press in the UK. Getting Higher, the Manual of Psychedelic Ceremony by renowned specialist of the matter, Julian Wayne. I admit that I personally have very little experience with the use of psychedelic drugs. So at first I asked myself if I would be the right person to review this work. But then I thought, with the right and honest approach of a curious and interested esotericist who wants to learn and know more, I should just do it. And after all, this is exactly how in the first place I got into the occult. And right I was. I learned a lot and I truly enjoyed it. On just under 130 pages, Julian gives us a wonderful overview on the techniques, terminology and possibilities on how to and how not to use psychedelic and consciousness-enhancing drugs in the occult and ritualistic context. I found it very helpful that he also gives a very clear definition of set, settings and substances, helpful for those who know, to give them a unique terminology to use, and helpful for those who did not know so much before reading this book. Julian then describes rituals and possible contexts, core techniques, gives warnings on what could go wrong and which traps to avoid. He also has a final chapter called On Coming Down, telling the psychonaut on how to best avoid an unpleasant aftermath to a previously pleasant experience. 
One could, of course, have a lengthy argument among occultists if it is good to use conscience-enhancing drugs in your spiritual experience or not, and also about all aspects of safe and legal use. And as it is stated on the first page of the book, this book is naturally in no way intended to promote any illegal activity. But Getting Higher is also a ritual book, of course for drug use, but also very interesting and instructive for people who want to continue without. I can only fully recommend this little book. It could become a standard work for the seasoned occultist as well as for the interested and courageous beginner. Honestly, this was the first book by Julian Vane that I read, and I was interested to see the rather long list of his other books. I'm quite sure that after the experience with Getting Higher, I will be grabbing some of them soon. Getting Higher by Julian Vane, The Manual of Psychedelic Ceremony The other work I would like to present to you today is a completely different type. A large, hardbound, heavy book, printed and bound in a wonderfully bibliophile way, on thick paper that has a perfect touch when you hold it. Having heard that description, the seasoned readers among our listeners will not be surprised that we talk about the latest new release of UK-based publishers Scarlet Imprint. They have a long-standing tradition of beautiful and interesting books. And Peter Mark Adams' The Game of Saturn, subtitled Decoding the Solabus Katarocchi, is a wonderful continuation of this path. Peter Mark Adams presents to us a tarot deck from the Italian town of Ferrara, one of the centers during the Renaissance from the 15th century. It is one of the most beautiful decks I have come across, and I have seen many, but also seems to be one of the most intriguingly codified decks, with a symbolism and a complexity that is outstanding. Now, you might ask, what can you write and say on over 260 pages in a large book about one single deck? The answer I must give to you is a lot. And the book is always fascinating, never boring. It always finds the right balance between being learned and precise and attracting the curiosity of the reader anyway. Needless to say that the reproductions of the cards themselves on the pages of the book are impeccable. Wonderfully intense and deep colors, great detail, a pleasure for the eye thanks to the used paper as well. But it gives the reader also enough to see that he can follow Peter's explanations on the cards, their background both symbolic and historical. As the title tells us, the deck is deeply related to the cult of Saturn and the rites of Ammon, revered throughout the ancient Mediterranean world, the Middle East and Africa. 
So this book is far more than another presentation of a tarot deck. But beyond that, it opens new doors of knowledge on a subject that could be interesting to many practitioners of the occult, interested to get a new view on practices they already use, or to open doors on a new path to be discovered. So this book should be on all shelves of occultists interested in either the tarot, Renaissance magic, Middle Eastern practices, Saturnists, you name it. It is not cheap, true, but it is worth any cent by its content and its sheer quality as an object. The edition is, as stated on the first page, strictly limited to 871 pieces. So it will become, I'm sure, very quickly a very searched after collector's object. Therefore, you should probably hurry to get a copy. It will be an additional gem on your bookshelf. Peter Mark Adams, The Game of Saturn, Decoding the Sola Busca Tarocchi. And with that, we come to the end of this episode number three. Thanks for staying with us. I hope you enjoyed, and I'm looking forward to be your host again on our next episode, which should be released on June the 1st, presenting an interview with one of the most important contemporary figures of the left-hand path, Swedish writer and founder of the Order of the Red Dragon, Thomas Carlsson. I am looking forward to hearing from you, and please share the news about Thoth Hermes with your friends. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.